Welcome back to the Jewish Reaction. My name is Rabbi Steve Berg. And I'm Rabbi Yaakov Glasser. And uh, it is a pleasure to uh, to have you here today with us. Although, I have to tell you, we're, we're making use of tremendous technology. Rabbi Glasser is actually not sitting next to me for once. Is that correct? That is true. I, I lack the distinction of sitting in the actual OU recording booth today. I am coming to you from the New Jersey region of NCSY, where you can feel the Kirov just permeating throughout the state. Wonderful. Uh, anyway, just uh, before we get on to uh, today's topic, I wanted to mention I actually got a... Uh, a, uh, an email, but really we should call it fan mail, um, from someone. And, and they had uh, remarked, and they were kind of curious about the formality, the fact that we call each other rabbi. And uh, they requested that we drop it. Now, what are your feelings about that? I don't know, Rabbi Berg. Rabbi Glasser, I don't know. You're, you're welcome know. to drop the formality for me, but... Uh... Uh-huh. All those years sitting in the YU Smicha program, I, I'd have to say you, you'll always be Rabbi Berg. Okay, so you know we'll uh, we'll keep we'll keep the rabbi on for now, but uh, we'll uh, we'll revisit that at a later time. Anyway, we have a... we could try we could try. <laughs> yeah, don't try that. So uh, one of the things we want I have to be able to speak now. Um, one of the things we wanted to talk about this week was uh, obviously uh, we're in the part the safe operations, and there's just incredible things going on every single week from. Uh, from Noah and to Adam, and, and now we're up to uh, Avram Avinu, to Abraham, uh, who really kind of kicked off the whole uh, Jewish people thing. And uh, Rabbi Glasser, uh, were you going to make a couple comments about that? Yeah, you know, whenever we open up Parshas Lechacha, it's interesting, just as we were finishing up Shachos and Shul this morning, we had someone with us, a davening, uh, who had made Aliyah about 10 years ago, and he came up to me at the end of davening, and he said to me, Rabbi, you know, you should, the only thing you should say this week for your drushas, you should just get up and read the Pasuk, and you should sit down. And aside from the fact that, you know, as a pulpit rabbi, I could never say those few amount of words. I mean, maybe God could do it in those few amount of words, but, uh, you know, we have to be able to build a sermon, of course. But the, uh, you know, that, that sense of passion that comes from people who've made the decision to go and to move their family and to move their life, uh, you know, is always inspiring. And I think one of the aspects of dealing with Jewish teens uh, that Rabbi Berg and I have an opportunity to connect to often is the decision that many, many Jewish teens make uh, to the decision, the desire to leave their home, to leave uh, the immediate influence of their parents, uh, to leave their surrounding social circles, and immerse themselves for a year in the land of Israel, in its culture, in its people, and of course, most uh, prominently, in its Torah. Well, you know, one of the things that I always loved about Nachum Siegel, and uh, just to remind everyone, we are here on the Nachum Siegel Network, um, and, and actually truly honored to be part of the Nachum Siegel Network, but uh, one of the things that uh, I always admired about him was his uh, just sense of, of Israel. Constant, constant, the beginning, the end of his show, the middle of his show, a constant focus on Israel, and uh, I think that that's one of the, probably one of the more important things um, that we have, you know, is to focus on Israel, to know that it's really our homeland, and, and you know, you can't help but get emotional. And, and the truth is, these last couple of years, with the great work of Rabbi Josh Fass and Nevish Benefesh, you know, we've seen a lot of a lot more Aliyah happen and a lot more people uh, moving to Israel, and it's just uh, it's been just incredible to watch. Yes, Rabbi Berg, we, we have definitely woken up together at the wee hours of the morning to be at that Ben-Gurion airport greeting uh, that Nefesh Benefesh does so beautifully. Uh, and it's, it's stirring, it's emotional, it's inspirational. It's, it's hard to leave that airport and not sign up yourself. 
And, and one of the things that I think as, a, as an Orthodox Jew, I tell you, I've, I've um, spent a lot of time in a lot of different uh, arenas in the Jewish world, but one of the things I've always been very proud of as being an Orthodox Jew uh, is the fact that our kids, it's not just that we support Israel, we're so focused on Israel that, not, you know, we many, many of us send our kids, you know, during high school, different trips and stuff like that. But almost more importantly than that is post high school, um, whether the year right after high school, within a couple of years after high school, uh, that, that they call it the gap year, that year that's spent in Israel where, where you know, years ago, people spend one year. Now people are spending two, three, four years. Some people are just staying. But that unbelievable dedication that we had, that automatic that says, look, before we, you know, we go out into the working world, before we go to college, before we do anything else, we're going to spend a year in Edgestone. We're going to focus on, uh, on Torah. It really, it really is a, a phenomenal experience. And uh, I would say probably one of the most transformative innovations in the structure of Jewish education in, in hundreds of years, if you think about it, in terms of taking a year off uh, precisely in the aftermath of those high school years uh, where, you know, experimentation and, and hanging out and trying different things is, is certainly part of the, the natural uh, progress and development of a teen. And before entering that arena of the more serious focus of your college years and your more substantial yeshiva years, uh, to sort of take time to mature uh, personally, to mature emotionally, to mature spiritually in an environment that is really built to, you know, uh, nurture that maturation uh, and infuse it with uh, a Torah hashkafa and with a devotion, devotion to learning. You know, I've, I've always, uh, I've said this many, many times. You know, I spent my uh, most of my career working, uh, as you have, uh, Rabbi Glasser, with uh, with high school kids, and talking about how Kodesh Baruch Hu is in God is pretty clear that when you turn 12, 13, you become a bardas, you become a thinking individual. But, you know, there's like another age that, that people don't talk about as much, and that's age 20. You know, age 20 was when, you know, in biblical times, people went to the army. 20 is when a person could be chayv kares, when a person is uh, gets certain punishments. Um, there's a certain uh, status that the Torah recognizes um, when a person is comes 20, you know, when you're, you're 13, 12, you're like quasi-adult, and when you're 20, you hit to be a real adult. And the, I think there's something to be said on, a, on a, a spiritual, metaphysical level to say that, you know, we're sending our, our kids right before they, they reach full adulthood um, to spend it in Israel learning and focused and, you know, really laying the, uh, the groundwork for the rest of their lives. I, you know, I'd like to say that the, the, the 13-year-old rite of passage is uh, maturing into responsibility. And as you complete those teenage years, you get into the 18, 19, 20, uh, you pass more into the realm of accountability. Uh, now you're not just responsible for your actions, but they matter. They're going to stick. They're going to be real. The decisions you make are going to resonate and impact the rest of your life. Um, and to be able to be making those decisions and thinking through those issues uh, in a context that is that is so um, spiritual and, and so connected to the broader Klal Yisrael, to be an Eretz Yisrael during that specific developmental uh, time, I agree with you 100%. I mean, that is that is certainly one of the major contributions of our of our system to the development of our youth. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting because I find that people take it so much for granted. Um, that it's just like an automatic, but it wasn't always that way. I mean, you know, earlier in the early days, there were very few institutions, and uh, it was really a tremendous mysterious nevish to kind of get there and go there for the year. And it's just uh, because of those, you know, young brave pioneers, it's become like an automatic. I mean, do you find? Let me ask you this, because you're you're in New Jersey working with a lot of uh, yeshiva high schools, you're doing public schools, all kinds of different schools. Do you find that uh, it's pretty much an automatic today? And 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 I guess 
part two to my question here on the Nachum Siegel Network would be, um, you know, is it harder making the decision today because there's so many choices, or is it easier to make the decision to go, you know, as opposed to the old days when there were like two choices out there? But I, th- I think the whole landscape of the Israel institutions have changed. It's something that's very, very important for parents to keep in mind who are selecting schools today because, you know, what we have going on now, Rabbi Berg, is the generation that went is now sending their children. That's what's happening now. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's very important to keep in mind is some of the fundamental distinctions between when we all went to Israel for the year and what the students are experiencing now. One of them, as you, as you rightly pointed out, is the diversity of options of places to go. Uh, that has certainly made it much easier for students to decide to go. You can go to a school now that focuses on Gemara. You can go to, with a more classical uh, yeshiva framework. You can go to a school that focuses on Tanakh. You can go to a school that focuses on Chesed. Uh, there are programs that have been developed around college as well. Uh, there are so many different diversified options. It's not just like the big, you know, I remember when we went, you know, there were the big three or four schools, and that's pretty much where everyone went. You know, now there are all these, like, boutique uh, Israel programs that allow for um, personalization in terms of the experience. In, in terms of what you asked about, about it being automatic, I think it depends on the school. In certain circles, it has absolutely become completely automatic. There's no question that, that students just see this as the natural next step. Now, one of the things that we have seen in New Jersey over the last, I would say, two to three years, um, as certain factors have begun to um, play out, the economy, other things, um, security situation in Israel, and there are you know, students who choose not to spend their year in Israel, uh, schools are trying to be much more conscious, and I know in NCSY we had a big meeting about this and, and discussed it at great length. Uh, everyone's trying to be much more conscious uh, when you talk about it being automatic, not to make the students who don't go feel like uh, you know, they are a lost cause in terms of their uh, religious development, that uh, Torah is something that was given in the Midbar and could ultimately be observed anywhere, and that certainly the year in Israel is essential and fundamental to your religious maturation and your development as a Ben Rabbas Torah. Uh, but that it, truth is the experience is not for every single person, and there are kids who don't go, and it's vital that the community embrace those kids and uh, empower them with a sense of purpose that they can grow religiously uh, even if they choose not to go. So I think on one hand it's become very automatic, that's certainly true. Uh, on the other hand, there, there is that, that minority that are not going, and, and it's crucial that we give them the support they need as well. And, you know, I, I, the truth is I do want to get into more specifics in terms of the, the uh, what's available in Israel and stuff like that. But, you know, the, uh, we're running a little bit out of time for this segment. Um, but I do want to mention one thing, which I thought was uh, fascinating, um, which is, uh, you know, I have some, some speaking to some people in, in uh that are a little bit more of a yeshivish uh, crowd, and they they were telling me, and I just thought this, this is very interesting, um, that um, a lot of times in, in the yeshiva world, they do not go straight after high school because they feel the kids are still a little bit young, and, and what they'll do is they'll put about two, three years in a base measure and then go to Eretz Yisrael, which is, by the way, uh, uh, actually, a, I think, a very valid, pretty, pretty good approach. Certainly, and, you know, we've had students... Um, that have graduated high school, gone to, you know, uh, a campus with a strong Jewish presence, uh, and then, you know, have gone to Israel later. There are certainly some advantages to that. Remember, when, when kids show up in Israel more mature, 
uh, already kind of serious with, uh, you know, a foot into the adult world through college and internships they may have been doing over the summers and things like that. Uh, there's, they certainly will embrace the experience uh, even more from the outset uh, with a greater degree of seriousness. I think there are some fundamental differences between uh, the yeshiva world and the more modern orthodox yeshiva high school world in terms of uh, what goes on during those four years of high school that probably account uh, for the you know, more natural progression of a modern orthodox yeshiva high school kid um, needing to go to an environment that's a little bit more isolated and focused uh, at that point in their development as opposed to the more uh, yeshiva kid. But look, there are exceptions on, on all sides. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's correct, and I think also uh, in probably many of the modern Orthodox high schools, um, there's a feeling and, and a sense that the kids uh, appropriately are going to be going off to uh, to college and what have you. And now is really the time, um, whereas it could be in some of the more yeshivish world that their the plan is to more sit and learning for a while before college, so they have time to kind of parse that out. But yeah, I've seen it go both ways. I just thought that was something kind of interesting. Uh, truth is, we should wrap up now and uh, um, be and uh, because we have a lot more stuff coming on here going on here from the OU. We're going to hear. For a little bit from conscious from some of the political folks and some of the uh, the internet folks, um, and uh, that's about it. So uh, we're here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and uh, I got to tell you, Rabbi Glass, just before we sign off, before we get right back on, this is this. I'm actually enjoying having the booth to myself. I, I could see I could so see I'm... how um, <laughs> I could see how you know the booth in its in its isolating environment could. <laughs> You you may not really be invited back up here. You may do this by phone from that. These kind of things. <laughs> uh, but keep my seat warm, Rabbi. Because I uh, well, I actually have my feet up on it, so I'm keeping it warm. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, this is the Nachum Siegel Network, and uh, Rabbi Glasser and uh, Rabbi Berg are here, and we'll be back. Uh, welcome to Torah on the Web. My name is Jack Abramowitz, and today we are talking with Charlie Harari, who may be familiar to you from his videos that appear on Aish as well as occasionally on OU and NCSY. He's the founder and president of Milvado, Inc., and he also has his own site, charlieharari.com. Thank you for joining us, Charlie. My pleasure, Jack. Great to be on the show with you. So can you give us an idea how you got started in making these incredibly creative and substantive Internet videos? Well, the truth is it all came from uh, an, an idea from NCSY. I was uh, speaking at a, in a region called Long Island region, which I was part of, and a creative young advisor named Eliyahu Rosen came up to me and said that he was running a club and wanted to find a way to reach the kids before holidays. The problem is that many times before a holiday, you either didn't have a club hour or the kids may have been on vacation, spring break, or whatever. So he said, can I come to your house and videotape a Zvartola, and I would sort of get it out to these kids. I said, my pleasure. So he came uh, to my living room with a, a green sheet, like it looked like a bed sheet. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, hey, it's called a green screen. I'm like, okay. And he held a video camera and it took us, I don't know, like a few takes. And he put behind it these images. But the first one sort of didn't really take and people were like, what is that? That's a little weird. At that point, I don't think anyone had these types of things out there. Um, but you know, next one we did was for Pesach and we, people started watching. We couldn't believe it. We were like shocked that like anyone would watch it. I remember the two of us went through the Seder and called each other much in you know, the first days of, of uh, Pesach, and we're like, oh my God, like 3,000 people watched the video. And at that point, Baruch Hashem was like a unique concept. So H.com said, hey, you know, want to do them for us? And that's sort of how we got started, uh, sort of doing these things, really just trying to figure out how to reach out to, uh, 
to more high school students in a way that would appeal to them. Well, anyone who's heard you speak, whether it's for the OU or NCSY or elsewhere, knows you know how engaging you are just when you're standing at a podium. But when you do these videos, the, the visuals and the graphics, they add a whole second layer. What, what kind of response have you gotten to that, aside from the, the high school students who were your original audience? Yeah, and Baruch Hashem, you know, it's all comes from him. I mean, when you're in, when you're standing in front of an audience, what people don't appreciate sometimes is that there's an energy, there's a vibe. That even when you're in the room with somebody, they have a vibe that hopefully they're giving you. You have a vibe giving back. It's like a real experience. But when you're sitting in a, when you're watching a video on the screen, or if you're, especially if you're speaking to basically a, a, a cold camera, that vibe is all missing. And so what we found is that by adding a little bit of music and some images. It sort of helps people hear it, and it really creates the mood, so to speak, um, that we're looking for. And so thank God, I mean, that's all from him, but thank God that the reaction has been very positive. People from all, really all walks of life that, uh, you know, just, I'll tell you, this morning I got an email from a minister in New Zealand that just came across uh, the video we did on, um, on marriage and how grapes and wine represent marriage by crushing yourself to be like one. And he's telling me that he's sitting in New Zealand overlooking a vineyard, um, married 25 years. And so, you know, the beauty of the Internet is that you, don't, you really can reach, you know, people you know, in, in ways you couldn't reach before. And uh, it, it, it's helpful when you have images behind you and music to sort of help the message get across. Now, the, the Internet, as you said, is a very powerful tool for reaching people and engaging them. Can you tell us about about the opposite side of the coin? You had a, a project about a day to disconnect? Yeah. One of the projects that we did last year was, you know, day to disconnect. And now we did a video on disconnecting. And like everything in life, you know, when you have something that's powerful, you have the opportunity to use it for good and sometimes not for not as good. That's, it's a real truism in life where, you know, the power to create is the power to destroy. And so what you have sometimes is that since we're engaging in such a in a medium that's so entertaining, that's so engaging, that's so, um, in some ways, you know, overwhelming, that we get to a place sometimes where we're just always engaged in it, and we can never sort of pull away from it. And so the idea was to be able to sort of take control over the Internet, and to use it in a way that's positive requires us to be able to be in control of it. And as Jews, we know that there are times where God says do this, and times where God says don't. And many times what he's doing is he's sort of building that spiritual muscle to know that we're in control of the physical world. The physical, physical world doesn't control us. And when, we able, when we're able to not do something, that means that we're able to control when we do do something. We're, we're not the servant, we're the master. And the goal of Data Disconnect is really to be able to, to create a moment where during a regular weekday, we can sort of disconnect from the Internet and reconnect back to the people that that life that we love. And just doing that enables us to build that muscle to know when it, when we can use technology and when technology is sort of overwhelming us and pulling us away from some of the greatest things we have in life that we've sort of missed because we're always attached to some screen. That's great. And I had mentioned earlier you're founder and president of Milvado Inc. Can you tell our listeners what Milvado Inc. is and does? Milvado is a think tank for content creation. What we do is have a, um, a group of people that are involved that are thinking about what are the most innovative ways to get out spirituality. And so sometimes when you're in an organization, you're, you're really focused on what you're doing. 
and you need people out there figuring out where the where the trends, what's next, what's you know online schooling doing, what new videos doing. How do you really get out there and create new content? And so Mobile does is just that. It's it's it, it's almost like a production company. It tries to produce and do new things to enable us to get wisdom out into the world. And we've got right now in the pipeline a few interesting projects that uh, hopefully will come out where we're looking for new ways to get out, you know, these timeless ideas um, in ways that people can engage in that are innovative, that can really sort of fly with the way we're seeing material today. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I guess really the last question is is that uh, viewers may have seen your videos on Asia or elsewhere. What would they find if they visited you at charlieharari.com? Uh, yeah, I mean, what I try to do on the blog and my website is really try to create a place where everything lies. So you got all the videos there. Um, we have a radio show once a week. We blog about the show. We post it. We post the archive. Um, we try to create a central place where people can go and get everything that we're doing. Um, tell you where, where, where we're speaking, all these different things. And so, you know, if anyone's listening, we'd love to see you on charlieharari.com and, you know, on Twitter at Charlie Harari and Facebook. And we're just, every time we see something that inspires us, we try to put it up and share it with as many people as possible. Fantastic. Thank you again. And for those uh, listening who may not be familiar with Charlie's videos, I really suggest that you give them a look. There's nothing like them anywhere else I've seen on the Jewish Internet. My name is Jack Abramowitz. We've been talking with Charlie Harari, and you've been listening to Torah on the Web. Thank you, Jack. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much, Charlie. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. We'll be discussing a little bit the dinam of Dova Chorif. We usually have a principle that if I have a, a non-kosher fork or knife and I cut a piece of kosher food, uh, if everything is cold and there's no trephis on the surface of the utensil, or let's say I have a plate and some non-kosher food is placed on the plate and everything is cold and there's no greasy uh, trephis on top of the plate. So the din is that betzayna, uh, and if everything is cold, cold means below yatzolet, even if it's a little warm, yatzolet means a certain degree heat, uh, approximately the temperature of 120, 130, something like that, a little higher. So uh, if everything is cold, so it doesn't, uh, the trefer blea doesn't pass on from the trefer plate into the uh, into the food. So the Talmud says that there is an exception to the rule if you're cutting a very sharp vegetable uh, with a non-kosher knife. So then the blea will go in. So the uh, this is uh, usually assumed to mean even even if the knife is clean and there's no trefer on the surface of the knife. The different interpretations of the Gemara, but that's the interpretation that's accepted in Shulchan Aruch, even if the knife is clean and everything is cold, because you have a combination of two factors here. You have a duchkir sakina, the pressure of the cutting of the knife, with the dovacharivs, and then we assume that the trefabliya will go into the food. Or let's say if you have a very sharp uh, vegetable uh, that's solid, and I stick in a fork, the prongs of a fork. If I hold the vegetable on top of a spoon or on top of a fork, I didn't push in the prongs of the fork, then you only have dovachorip, but there's no duchkir sakin, there's no pressure. But if you have the combination of these two factors together, then we assume that the trefablia will go into the food. Not only trefablia, let's say I have a knife and I'm cutting um, an onion. The Shulchan gives different examples. I have a radish, 
I have beets, I have onions, I have some kind of a sharp vegetable. So if I'm cutting onions with a milchig knife, so those onions, even though the knife is clean, those onions will become milchig, and I'm not supposed to mix those onions into some uh, fleshy food. And if I'll cook the onions on a fleshy food, I'll have a problem on my hands, unless I can ascertain that I have shishim in the flesh against uh, all of the onions. Uh, so this is the first principle that appears in the Gemara, that when you have a Dovacharif with a combination of Duch Akina, so then uh, it can make treif or it can make fleshig or it can make milchig. That's why it's important, even if people have uh, fleshig knives and milchig knives separate, you have to have parva knives, because when you're going to cut uh, onions, you have to make sure you didn't cut the onion with a milchig knife and then mix it into your fleshig uh, food. There is one opinion in Taiswis that uh, if you have sakina, if you have um, uh, sharp pressure, uh, the bliya will go out even b'tzayin and even though everything is cold, even though it's not a dovacharif. Uh, so l'chatchila, the Shulchan recommends you should have a power of a bread knife because if you're going to use a, milchik, a clean milchik knife or a clean fleshig knife to cut the bread, so there is this uh, one opinion in the Taisus that Duchkir Sakina will transmit a bliya. But that's uh, for that. L'chatchile, we use a par of a bread knife. But Mikaradin, that's not really so. The, the din really is only if you have a Dovacharif or the Duchkir Sakina. Then Chumra number two, we have five Chumras in Dovacharif. Chumra number two, many Rishonim are of the opinion uh, that uh, even if this trefa knife or this fleshig knife has not been used in the last 24 hours for trefas or for fleshigs, and we usually have a principle that a cliche in a benyomo, a utensil that hasn't been used for trefas, has been used for fleshigs in the last 24 hours, so the blia that's sitting in the utensil for the 24 hours, so the the metal of the utensil or the charsa sakdeira, the earthenware uh, material of the pot will be working, will have an effect on the blia that's absorbed in the pot, and will make it into nice and tamal of gum. Uh, so this is usually the din, that uh, if you have a trefa kli or trefa knife that has been used in 24 hours, it's still required mid to kasha the knife. But b'riyevit, if I'd use the knife or I'd cook some soup in this trefa pot, that's ain't ben yoma, has been used in 24 hours, so it can't make anything treif, because the blia that's going to come out now into the new food is going to be nice and tamal of gum. It'll take away a little bit from the flavor of the kosher soup. So... Uh, Rashi has two opinions, and we're machmer on this in Shulchan Aruch. If I'm cutting a Dabacharif now, let's say I have a fleshig knife that hasn't been used for fleshigs in the last 24 hours, and now I cut an onion, or I cut a radish, or I cut a lemon or something, that's a Dabacharif. So then we say that the blia that comes out into the radish or into the onion is not going to be on the Esantam Levgam because the sharpness of the onion is such that whatever blia is going, whatever flavor is going to come into it will, will not uh, detract from the flavor of, of the onion. Or let's say I have uh, a tray for pot that I haven't used in 24 hours and I'm cooking some borscht in the pot. And the borscht is a dabacharif because it's sharp. Or if I'm cooking anything that's very sharp, just because you have a little bit of sharp flavoring in your soup, that does make it into a dovacharif. And Shulchan Aruch says, if the whole thing, the whole overall flavor of the whole soup that you're cooking is very sharp, so then I treat this uh, soup that I'm cooking as a dovacharif. Uh So just like if you cut uh, an onion with a knife, that's an ene ben yomo, so the din of 
Noisen tamlev gam doesn't apply. So too, if you cook a chorif dika, a harifiz dika soup and a pata, tzene ben yomo, the cool of avene ben yomo, of noisen tamlev gam would not apply. A third chumre that uh, we observe, we already spelled it out, there usually is a din of nat bar nat. Nat bar nat is a Rashi Tevis that appears in the Shulchan Aruch many times. Noisen tam bar noisen tam means like this. If I have some, uh, let's say, uh, uh, vegetable soup, and I pour in some milk, I pour in so much milk that I don't have shishim against the milk, so the vegetable soup is milchik. Uh, so you're not supposed to eat it together with meat. If you're fleshy, you're not supposed to, you have to wait six hours in order to have this vegetable soup that has a lot of milk poured into it. But what happens... If I have, uh, let's say, a burning hot piece of fish that I put on a milchik plate, the Gemara calls this dogim fish sheolu bekaira. I have burning hot fish that I put on a milchik plate. So the Gemara says, even though it's burning hot and it is going to absorb uh, some of the milchiks from the plate, so this is called neisentam bar neisentam dehetera. Originally, I used this plate. For uh, for hot cheese, let's say I heated up some cheese in in the microwave oven on this plate. So the plate got a blea; it absorbed cheese. So the plate is clearly milchik, and it's within 24 hours that uh, since I I heated it up with the cheese or with the butter or with the milk, whatever. If I take a, a hot piece of now the plate, let's say is cold. I take a burning hot piece of part of a fish and I put it on the plate. So even though the, there will be a blia, the milchik blia which is in the plate, I washed off the plate. So there's no milchiks on the surface. There's no milchiks bien. There's only a blia, an absorbed flavor of the milchiks of the milk in the plate. And now after I washed it off, now I put this burning hot slice of fish on the plate. So the blia, the flavor will go from the plate into the fish. And it's still kosher. It didn't become trafe yet. It's just a question, the fish became milchik now, because it's in the sinastam of the milk in the plate, and now it's in the sinastam of the flavor in the plate that goes into the fish. So in the Gemara, in the Shulchan that's called noisentam bar noisentam dehatera. Everything is still kosher, so we say the fish is considered uh, parave, and I can eat it together with flesh. There's a different story about eating flesh with fish, maybe it's a sakana, that's a different story. So this is called not by not the hetera is mutter. So the Rishonim Amachmir in Tosus they quote uh, in the name of Rashi's son-in-law was the Rivon. He quotes in the name of his father-in-law Rashi that this is only if the plate, the milchik plate, is cold and I put on burning hot piece of fish. What if I'm going to warm up? I'm going to heat up. Uh, the parva fish on the milchik plate, and they're both going to be hot. The plate is hot and the fish is hot. So the only time we are makel by not by not hetera, if it's dogim sheolu bekaira, if I put burning hot fish, parva fish, on a milchik plate, which is cold, or the plate is hot and the fish is cold, one is hot, one is cold. But if they're both hot and they're being uh, cooked together, dogim shin is bashlo bekaira, so then we're machmed that not banat, even though it's the hetera, we treat it lechatchila, uh, we're machmed that it is considered the milchik. So then in, uh, Rashi points out over here also, uh, I had this, not only if I have a trefer knife and I'm cutting an onion with the trefer knife and everything is cold and there's no schmaltz, no trefer schmaltz on the surface of the knife, not only if the knife is trefer, do we say if you have a combination of a dovachor, if a sharp flavored vegetable with a duchkidisakina that we assume that the flavor, trefer flavor goes, goes from the knife into the vegetable, 
even if it's a milchig knife, let's say. I cut an onion with a milchig knife, but the milchig knife has no milk on the surface. It's just balua in the milk. So that's tamrishan of the milk is in the knife, and the knife is now clean. Now I'm cutting an onion, so the, it's a nice and tam, by nice and tam. The flavor of the milk goes from the knife into the onion, and everything is still kosher. So I should have really declared that this is a nad banad de hetera, and, it, and the onion should be still considered a paravan. So that's why Rashi has one opinion, and that's what we machmer for that, that we consider this uh, nad banad, since it's a Dovachorib, so it doesn't go down a Madrega, and it's still considered milchik. And if by mistake I cooked the, the flesh with these onions that were cut with the milchik knife, I'm going to have a problem on my hands, and I have to start to worry to calculate if you have shishim in the flesh against the onions. So these are the first three chumras that are quoted in Shulchan Aruch, that we are machmer, even though normally there's no blia b'tzainen, um but if it's a dovachorif with a duchkir sakina, there is a bliya. Number two, if the trefer kli that I'm using is ena ben yoma, hasn't been used for trefers, hasn't been used for milchiks or fleshiks, in the last 24 hours we assume the bliya that's going to come out is going to be nice and tam gam, is going to be nifsa ma'achila, but over here if it's going into a dovachorif, it doesn't matter what the trefer food was that was absorbed yesterday, even if the trefer food was not a dovachorif, but if the kosher food that I'm cutting now is, or I'm cooking, the kosher soup, which is a dovacharif in the pot now, so if the kosher food is dovacharif, so then the kula of, of Ene Ben Yoma doesn't apply, and the third chumr is that the, the kula of Nat Banat doesn't apply either. Then you have in Shulchan Aruch another two chumras with respect to um, dovacharif that are questionable. So one chumr is we usually have a din of kovish kemevushal. Let's say I have a piece of uh, Meat was sitting and soaking in milk for 24 hours. So even though it wasn't cooked in the milk, so it's not biblically prohibited, Basavacholov is only prohibited in Menatora, if it's Derach Bishol, if they cook together. But if it's Kavush, if the meat was soaking in the milk for 24 hours, so we apply the rule of Kavush Kamevushol, and we assume that we will not succeed, we will not be able to succeed in rinsing off or squeezing out all of the milk that was absorbed into the piece of flesh. We assume the milk was absorbed, and it makes it Basavacholov in the Rabbanon. So this is only if it's soaking for 24 hours. Now we have a din in the Rosh that's quoted in the Shulchan Aruch. What if something was soaking in salty water? Let's say Afleshiks and Milchiks both soaking in salty water. So then it doesn't even have to sit for 24 hours. We would apply Kavish Kamevushal in a much shorter period of time. How short a period of time? So some can say 18 minutes. Other can say that's a major mistake. It's even less than 18 minutes. They say 6 or 8 minutes. So if you have Kavish in salty water... Kavish uh, Bitsir is salty water, then Kavish Kamavushal applies, Ablia will be accomplished in six minutes. So the um, Ramah in Hilchas Basabachalov quotes a Chumre from Rishonim that we should be Machmen Lachatrila not only on salty water, even on any sharp uh, liquid. If you have a Dova Kharif, if you have something that's very sharp, even though it's not salty at all, so we should consider that also kabbish kemavushal in way less than 24 hours, even though it's only soaking there for six uh, minutes. 
Bidiyeved, we would be Mekel. That's a, the Ramos says like that, and that's a Shach, and the Mishnah Brewer writes like that. Bidiyeved, we, we allow this. We say it's only Kobish in six minutes, it's only if it's salty water. Kobish Bitsir. But Kobish Bechaymetz in vinegar, some other sharp uh, flavor. So Bidiyeved, we would be Mekel, but Lachatchil, we are Machmer on that. Also, I should mention that uh, we assume that uh, onions are considered a davachar if they're raw onions. Once you've cooked it, when you start to cook it, it takes uh, a while till it loses the harifas. But after the onions are cooked already, then you taste it. You see it no longer has a harifas. So then uh, it will no longer be considered davachar. But the first couple of uh, seconds, while you're still frying the onions on top of, uh, on top of the fire, it will still retain its harifas. And then we have the fifth chumra that's also quoted in Shulchan Aruch, that um, let's say let's say I have a kettle of uh, water, I have a pot of soup, and I poured this soup, I poured the water into a bowl or into a cup. Uh, I have a cup of burning hot coffee. So when the water or the soup was in the original kettle or in the original pot, that's considered klirishon. We know in Hilchah Shabbos like that. Once I pour it into a bowl or into a cup, into a coffee cup, so that's not considered a klisheni. So we assume that there's no blia, there's no bishul in a klisheni. That's a din in Hilchah Shabbos. In there's no bishul. So uh, in Shulchan Aruch, there's a major dispute. Should I assume that just like there's no bishul in a klisheni for Shabbos purposes and for Basel B'chol of the Reiset purposes and for purposes of Korban Pesach, Boshel Mabushal Bamayim, you're not in violation of the prohibition of cooking the Korban Pesach if you cook in a klisheni, because klisheni is not mamashal. So should I assume also klisheni doesn't cause a blia? Or should I say, no, what has one got to do with the other? There are blias that make treif, even if it's not hot at all. You don't, blia doesn't depend on bishol v'haraya, that you have a blia if you have maliach kirasech, if you have something, two pieces of meat, kosher and non-kosher, are touching each other, and I put on a ton of salt so that non-kosher meat will make treif. The kosher piece of meat, the blia will be transmitted aide malicha. Or aide kovash, we said before. If something is soaking in water for 24 hours, there's no heat at all. It's not a klirish and it's not a klisheni. It's cold. It's in the refrigerator. But still, you see that you can have a blia even bitsenen. So why shouldn't you be able to have a blia be klisheni? So that's the argument of the Ramban and the Rajbo. So the the Shulchan Aruch says we should really be concerned about that opinion. We should consider it as if there's even a blia be klisheni. But the Eved, in Shulchan Aruch, the Psak is that Bidiyevet, a Bliya and a Klisheni doesn't tasa. Just like there's no Bishul and a Klisheni, so too there's no Bliya and a Klisheni. So now in Hilchah Shabbos, there's a Mishnah in the third parak of Masech Shabbos that sometimes if you have a Klisheni and it has a Dabacharif in it, so some of the Tanaim say that that, added, that is considered Bishul. There is Bishul even be Klisheni if you're dealing with a Dabacharif. So the Ramah in Hilchah Malicha. And Simon Samachtas quotes this Menegetu Ablia Biklisheni. If you have a Dovachorif that's burning hot and you poured it from the Klirishan into the Klisheni, although normally we would pask in that Bidyevid, Ablia that was uh, accomplished through a Klisheni doesn't dasa, we're just Machmalachatrila, that Klisheni is Mavliya Maflit, but Bidyevid we would be Mekel. But if the thing in the Klisheni is a Dovachorif, so then we say that the Klisheni is, uh, is still causes a and that would make treif. These are the five chumras that are discussed in Shulchanach with respect to uh, Dovachorif. So again, it's important everyone has to know they have to have, in addition to the fleshing knives and the milchig knives, you have to have a paravan knife so that when you cut your Dovachorif and you cut your onions, 
uh, if you cut the onions with a milchig knife, you have to be careful not to put it into the flesh because it can pose problems even with the oven. And just like it's important to be careful to make sure that we have part of a knife when we're going to cut uh, a dover chorif to make sure that we don't make the dover chorif fleshig or milchig, we can cause complications later on. Same is true using a fork, as we explained earlier. When you push the fork into a solid, that's also considered a duchkiris akin. And the same would be true if you have the blades on a blender. The blades are also going to be a duchkiris akin. So if you have a blender that became fleshig or milchig somehow, then you have to be careful not to use that blender, even though it's after 24 hours, ain't a benyomo, even though it's a heterobola. It's not a question of trefa, it's just a question of making fleshig. You have to be careful not to use it for dovachorif later, because uh, the blea will go out into the dovachorif, and it'll make it melchig or fleshig, whatever, and then it can pose uh, problems uh, later on. Welcome back to the uh, Jewish Reaction with uh, Rabbi Steve Berg and... Rabbi Yaakov Glasser. It was still on the phone, but uh, we actually, when we were just uh, off taping, decided we like this better, so we may actually never see each other ever again. Oh, please not. Rabbi Brooke, don't you live in New Jersey? That's, that's a good point, though. <laughs> yeah, anyway, you know, while I, we're talking about the booth, <laughs> I thought maybe we should give a shout-out of a Rafur Shlema to our regular technician, Dan. Yes, Dan Jesselson, who is just a, a, sad, a sweet, sweet guy. Uh, had some back surgery. I actually spoke to him, and, and he was on the mend, and he's doing uh, much better. And we uh, Hope he gets back soon. Anyway, we were uh, we were talking before about Israel and about just the culture that um, the Orthodox community has to make sure that their kids uh, put m- one year, multiple years into um, into studying in Eretz Yisrael uh, and being there. And I thought for a second we could talk a little bit about um, some of the options there, not not specifically, but just kind of, you know, kind of like you know, you know, you talk to a lot of uh, a lot of teenagers. I mean, what what's going through their mind when they're trying to kind of make this decision? Like, what what questions are they asking? Um, I think the first question most of them ask as they try to sort through the different programs available is: to what degree do they want their experience to be primarily Israeli, and to what degree, you know, with with an American integration, and to what degree do they want their experience to be primarily American? Um, with an Israeli, you know, component, uh, because that's really the first way that these schools begin to divide themselves. Uh, if you're looking for more of a yeshiva, it has their program, um, a program like Michalala, uh programs that are, for the most part, um, completely, you know, integrated in terms of the American program into the Israeli culture. And even within those different schools, there certainly is a spectrum between the degree to which uh, the school will integrate the uh, youngsters into the more Israeli environment. Um, then once you choose to be in that Israeli environment, so different schools have certainly a different spectrum of ideologies, different spectrum of focus. Um, they have different orientations in terms of learning, um, in terms of how they develop and cultivate the Rebbe Talmud and uh, Rebbe Talmidah relationships. Um, and then among the American schools, like we were discussing before, there's just a great degree of diversity uh, between different options that focus on different, uh, on different components. And, you know, some are more focused on developing skills in Gemara. Some are more focused on giving kids a more well-rounded Jewish education in terms of more diverse subjects like philosophy and Jewish history. Some get the kids active, you know, and we'll get them out there and doing chesed and doing all sorts of uh, different programs. Yeah, I know, Rabbi Berg, I know that you have had the opportunity um, 
as the international director of NCSY, to do this whirlwind trip every year uh, that all of us in NCSY are just in awe of, that uh, most of us couldn't keep up with for one day. Uh, but I, I imagine that if you would speak to that a little bit, that would certainly give people a, uh, a perception of the spectrum of app options out there in terms of, of, of what you do at the end of the year. Yeah, the, thank you very much for alluding to that. Um, I actually, in around May, uh, last couple of years, it's kind of become a tradition. Um, I, I go out to, in four days, I do over 30 schools. Um, and I basically speak to them, all the different schools, to uh, to kind of talk to them about volunteering for NCSY, you know, when they come back home. And uh, what's interesting for me, and, 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 you know, I've actually taken different staff people with me, and I think most of them would, would tell you that the reason I do it is, you know, the thrill of getting from one school to the next in like 30 seconds um, and driving around my rental car in Israel. But, uh, of course, we obey all, uh, all uh, posted speed limits. Anyway, uh it's really amazing to see back to back to back to back all the different schools. And, and there are stark uh, differences between them. Uh, there are differences between the type of kid that goes. There's differences between the type of educational approach. You know, what you mentioned in terms of um, how integrated into Israel they are versus are they a cocoon of Americanism where the kid will, you know, not hear a Hebrew word almost all year. Um, it's really fascinating. And I, I, I wonder... You know, how much, and the truth is I have a 10th grader now, so, you know, soon I'll be thinking about this. I wonder how much, you know, thought really goes into, you know, kind of making the shidduch between the kid and the institution. You know, you mentioned something that brought me back just in terms of that Israel kind of integration. I mean, I, I, when I was in Israel, and this is going back over 20 years, um, I remember I spent my first year, I spent, uh, I went to a program called Tochni Tishrei and Tochni Nisan, two different uh, programs. And basically I went to a kibbutz and I worked on a kibbutz. And um, it, for me, it was just to this day, I think it's one of the really interesting experiences that I've had um, to really kind of be up there talking to kibbutz guys. I did this thing um, called rock removal. I mean, it's kind of is what it sounds like. But basically, you have to pick up the really heavy rocks that the Caterpillar machinery can't pick up from the fields um, and throw it in. And I'm sitting with the kibbutz. I think we're doing this all day. Most exhausting work I ever did in my life. But like, you know, it was something about kind of being out there and talking to people and, and being out of your cocoon. Um, and learning about Israel that I it was just amazing for me. I was always wondering where all your farming background, Rabbi Burr. Yeah, well, that was uh, that was pretty much it. Hey, Rob, this is an amazing <laughs> revelation that you worked on a kibbutz. I, uh, two kibbutzim. One was kibbutzim. Meirav, one was Mali Gilboa, and I spent a lot of time in the carrot factory. Would you would you attribute some of your uh, what certainly everyone knows to be? Um, extreme passion about Israel uh, to those experiences? It's a good question. It's a good question. You know, I'm, I'm crazy passionate about Israel. You know, if you were to talk to my kids and ask them um, where, where their dad wants them to live, they'll, they'll just say Israel. You know, I'm not sure they're all bought in. You know, we're still working on them, especially my five-year-old. You know, we're talking about it. But uh, I think that, you know, is that part of it? I, for me, a lot of it is just, I think it's, it's just straightforward what God wants. I think, you know, I don't think, you know, Lech Lecha, like, you know, this week's Parsha, as we were saying before, I think God was incredibly clear that he wants us there. But I do think there is something special about the land. And I think there's something special. You know, that was my first year in Israel. I spent on kibbutz. My second year in Israel, I went on a program called, which they do not have anymore, called Shomer Yisrael, where you did three weeks of training in Sahal. And then you had to do three weeks of like guard duty all over the country. 
and um, God help them, they gave me a gun and put me in an Arab prison. Uh, it was, you know, <laughs> looking back, and this was like pre-Antifada, like before they had a lot of the problems there. I'm not sure 100% what they were thinking, but uh, but you know what, I gotta tell you, I remember I was in Yericho doing guard duty, and uh, we, we used to go there over Shabbos, so like a lot of these soldiers can go home to their families. And uh, aside from the f- time when I got into a lot of trouble because a bunch of us went for a walk through Eureka, which in retrospect wasn't wasn't the smartest thing in the world. But um, hanging out there, and, and when we did guard duty, I was in the front of some base, and I was doing guard duty, and it was like three, four hours of a shot. You're sitting there. It's it's mostly boring because, you know, there's nothing going on. People, you know, rarely coming in and out. But I was sitting there with another Miluim guy. And, you know, you're sitting, you know, with some guy, whether it's Sephardi, this guy, that guy from all walks of life. And you're just talking to him, and um, yeah, I think I think that did have a big effect on me, and I think that that's that's something we should try and focus more on in in the Jewish people. I think one of the, the problems that I see in the Jewish world right now is that we just we just don't talk to each other, we don't hang out with each other. Um, you know, people there's a big push. You know, you and I, Rabbi Glasser, are both Kirov guys. You know have a billion non from people over a house for Shabbos. What if, you know, what if a non-Orthodox person was going to have a Hasidish person over and a Hasidish was going to have a Yeshivish person over and a Yeshivish person was going to, you know, what if like the Orthodox community, you know, started getting together and, and hanging out with each other? Um, I think that that's, you know, that's makes you who you are. Yeah, there's no, there's no question that experiences that allow you to meet different kinds of people give you a more sophisticated and a more nuanced attitude towards what it means to be part of, of Klai Yisrael. You know, I, I wanted to pick up on one aspect of what you experienced there that I think uh, is one of the main fundamental differences between the experience now, and this is something that uh, I know that we've both spoken at length about with our colleague, Rabbi Moshe Benevitz, uh, who has a tremendous amount of experience with the Israel scene as well as with the Yeshiva High School scene, the director of RNC, so I summer Kolel, who also is a Rebbe, I think, in Rashis. Uh, and that is that when we went to Israel, Rabbi Berg, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got on that plane and you flew to Israel and that was it. In other words, your your parents, your friends, everybody who was at home, if you wanted to communicate with them, you know, I remember we would we would write on aerograms, um, you know, you'd maybe little osimones that you would you would drop, you drop into the payphones, the or you'd like call collect, and you have like a code worked out depending on <laughs> which name you use. Your parents knew which phone to call you yeah. back at the yeshiva. Halachically dubious, but yeah, we all did you know, it. Like, and, and, and that's what it was. You spoke to them maybe once a week, maybe once every other week, and you know, yeah. it, it just yeah. was a much more immersive, isolated experience. One of the main differences between what went on then and what's going on now is because of technology and cell phones and Facebook and, and the Internet, um, it is a very, very different experience. When the kids go there, uh, they are not as isolated from their friends here. They're not as isolated from their families. Um, they are still connected to the American scene on many levels, not just socially. They know what's going on. They know what's happening. You know, um, they know they know what's going on with the you know American election. I remember when you were in Israel for the year, like things that happened in America, like you, you just they were off your radar. They didn't even seem important. You were just so immersed in in, in the learning and in the experience. I remember once a year they would rent out a movie theater and and somehow get the Super Bowl to show. <laughs> that's right. In this one movie theater in the middle of town, and and now that's right. At like two in the right? morning, and now everyone's got it on their cell yeah. phone. <laughs> and and that's you know, and I think you know, 
on some levels, that's uh, that certainly has positive elements to it. I mean, parents, I think, are much more reassured, uh, both from a security standpoint, to know that they can get in touch with their kids no matter where they are, um, and also even from a influential standpoint, that you know the experience in Israel is not as detached from familial influence as it used to be, but. The Mechanchim uh, in Mechanchot in Eretz Yisrael, uh, certainly when you speak to them, uh, they have a high degree of frustration. They feel that these technological connections are to some degree uh, somewhat of a barrier in terms of their ability to really inspire. It's a real issue. There's no doubt it's, it's, it's a real issue. And uh, it, it's, I would even compound that, and I think that... Um, what you were saying was absolutely right, but um, I would even add on to that the fact that the frequency in which people come and go to Israel, meaning, you know, I was talking to someone, they said, you know, the kid was in Israel, and he went to Israel, and then he came home for Sukkot, <laughs> and then and he went back, and he was home for Hanukkah, and then uh, there was some kind of bar mitzvah in between, and then he was back home for Pesach, and the kid came home four times. So you're not, you know, the the Rechaim Shmulavitz, the Rosh Shiva, the great, of I think it was the beer, so he has a great... Vord uh, or parable, really, where he's talking about how, like, learning Torah is kind of like putting a tea kettle, like a tea kettle on the fire, you know? And, you know, if you keep pulling that tea kettle off, it ain't going to boil, <laughs> you know? It's just got to sit. And a little bit like that with Lima to Torah. And I think those are some of the challenges um, that our generation is facing. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm getting on a plane, I mean, going to Germany tonight. I'm sure you're not surprised for something. And, um, you know, I'm leaving tonight, Monday night, and uh, my family's like, oh, when are you getting back? I'm like, Wednesday night. You know, right. I'm just popping over there for the day, popping back. And, and, and you know, I do the same thing in Israel, like my four-day trip. I'm, I just go, you know, I go Sunday. I'm back Friday morning, and I'm home for shops with my family. And, you know, there are benefits to that. But I think what you're saying in, in terms of the detachment um, that people are, are feeling in terms of not, you know, getting into the— to the culture there is, is, a, is a real serious issue. It's definitely a complex issue, but uh, all in all, there's nothing, there's nothing in the world like, you know, come June time where all the kids start coming back from Israel and, and they have the Gemaras under their, under their arm and they have the Tanakhs under their arm and they're at the Minyanim more and all, you know, in, I know in Teaneck, you know, the, the, literally the frequency of Minyanim increases. The shuls will add additional Minyanim for these Sure, kids. sure, sure. Later yeah. Minyanim, thank God. <laughs> Well, they're on Israel time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, by the way, and, and uh, everyone out there, you're listening to the uh, the Nachum Siegel Network with uh, Rabbi Glass and Rabbi Berg. Um, yeah, no, that, that's definitely true. But you know what? You're, you're actually mentioning something that uh, we should perhaps take a whole other show to talk about, which which I've seen, I think, is a real issue, um, which is when someone spends a whole benazmanim, which is really, in essence, the summer, when people come home. You know, I've seen people come home, like, real supercharged. And, and if they don't have anything to do, um, and they don't either, you know, whether it be chavrusas, whether it be a job, whatever it is, you know, it, it's um, it's very difficult to maintain that sort of intensity. Um, and a lot of people kind of come home and, and, and it's hard for them to deal I, with that. I, we certainly could devote a show to talking about the challenges of coming home for, for the student and for the rest of the family. Parents. Well, well, well said um, for the rest of the family as well. And uh you know that's uh, that's definitely a challenge, and and you know perhaps the next show I think uh, I think we will take some time out to really talk about that about um, com- coming down off the mountain for lack of a better term, and and how you kind of reintegrate with uh, you know with your family and friends and stuff like that, um, which which is never quite so simple. Um, I actually wanted to mention something, Rabbi Glasser. I wanted to mention that uh, this week there was a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous simcha in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. Are you aware of what I'm speaking? 
talking about a, a certain bris? Yes. It was a bris. Rabbi Ephraim and Yocheve Gober gave birth to a baby boy after six girls. Right, mom. And uh, I got to tell you just a quick story. Quick story. This is, this is absolutely the truth. Uh, I'm, I'm in the White House with a group of 100 high school teens, future leaders. Um, Jared Bernstein was, uh, I may have even mentioned this last show, was, was kind enough, the director of outreach, of Jewish outreach for the White House, was kind enough to have us there for two hours, question and answer the whole thing. And, and right in the middle of his presentation, right in the middle of his presentation, uh, his, his, his aide comes running over with his Blackberry, and he, she says, it's something really important. He pulls it out, and he looks at me, and he screams out, and he says, oh, Rabbi Goldberg had a boy. <laughs> Like in the middle of the White yeah, House. So just in case anyone didn't know how Chashev <laughs> Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg was, there was an announcement in the White House um, that he had a boy. But really, it were, uh, I actually tried to watch it online. I tried to listen to it online. It was, a, it was streamed. I was in my car. I, it was uh, really, the parts I heard were absolutely beautiful. I was able to hear his brach, and the truth is that's probably the most important part. Rabbi Goldberg is certainly a phenomenal Jewish leader, and maybe... Maybe one of our future shows, we could have him as a guest. Oh, yeah. He's, he, he's tremendous. I think he's one of the top pulpit rabbis uh, in the country, um, mitos-wise, learning-wise. He gives a, uh, a Shabbos Shuvah drasha. He gives a Shabbos Shuvah. I'm, I, I kid you not when I tell you there are about 100 sources on, the, on his source. I was going to call it a source sheet. It would be a joke. He gives like a source book. Um, which is just packed and it's just unbelievable. I mean, he's really one of my heroes. And uh, I think we're going to wrap it up. So uh, once again, I want to thank you so much. This is Rabbi Berg. Thank you for listening to uh, the Jewish Reaction on the Nachum Siegel Network. And we're so thankful. And I want to point out one more thing before we go, Rabbi Glass. Are you still there? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I wanted to point out that in this past week's Mishpacha magazine, there was a picture of Nachum Siegel with 10 questions. That's right. Which were great. But that is not at all what I absolutely loved. I'm sure you love the same thing. Do you know what I'm talking I, about? do know what you're talking about. The, the massive picture of Nahum was not a picture of him in his studio and not a picture of him at the Haas concert and not a picture of him at any of the hundreds of events that he hosts throughout the year, but rather it was a picture of him at Rabbi Berg. The NCSY staff conference holding a massive gold record um, and with a little dedication to NCSY, which we gave him for his tremendous work. Um, it really was a beautiful night, just a beautiful night, and he's a beautiful person. Uh, but so it's, it's really appropriate that here we are on the Nachum Siegel Network with uh, two NCSY guys celebrating the fact that Mishpachal Magazine highlighted uh, that involvement. Nachum Siegel's a great leader. We should have him on the show once. We should have him on the show. You think we could book him? Maybe we should uh, talk to, have our people talk to his people. First, we'd have to get people, and then we'd have to find if he has people, and then we could have the people talk to people. Anyway, thank you so much. want to thank you very much, everybody. Have a great week. Have a great Shabbos. Have a great everything. And uh, we look forward to uh, speaking to you next week. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye-bye.